Lord, fill us with your Spirit so that we may see you with eyes of faith and have the will to obey and to follow you all our days. Amen. Since 2010, there's been a 134% increase in the prevalence of anxiety as a diagnosed mental illness among 18 to 25 year olds. 134%. Amongst 26 to 34 year olds, it's a 103% increase. And amongst 35 to 49 year olds, there's been a 52% increase since 2010. Staggering numbers. Additionally, a recent survey by the U.S. government found that half of adults report experiencing loneliness and or isolation, and the highest rates within this 50% are among young adults, that 18 to 25-year-old range. And maybe you fall into one of those categories. Maybe you wake up in the middle of the night and your mind's spinning and you can feel the anxiety rising about this or that or maybe nothing in particular or everything all at once. And you can't settle your breathing and slow down long enough to invite sleep to return. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you feel it now. And maybe you sit alone in your room and as the sun begins to descend over the western horizon, you feel the darkness creeping into your mind and your energy begins to wane as the silence gets louder and you're alone. You don't simply know you're alone, you feel it. Now we'll leave it to the sociologists to attempt to explicate the causes of all of this. What matters for us is that so many of us are there, anxious, isolated, lonely, fearful. It's the epidemic of our day. And what matters even more for us is what God does or can do for someone in such a state. This week I sat across the table from a young man whose nine-year-old son is in a battle with cancer. A few days ago he received word that his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, has had multiple strokes. She won't survive. Her husband made the impossible decision to put her into hospice care. She's in her late 30s with a young special needs child. But you can imagine what my friend feels at night right before bed, can't you? And then throughout the watches of the night, and then especially just before dawn. Will sleep come tonight? Will I be able to go back to sleep? How can I possibly, how can I get out of this bed and drive my son yet again to the hospital to be poked and prodded and fed with toxic chemicals that we're told are his only options. Hello Jesus, you there? 
It unsettles me that in the Gospels, sometimes it seems like Jesus is always trying to get away from people. Have you noticed that? He's got all three years of earthly ministry, and it feels to me sometimes like he's hiding and running away from everyone. In Matthew 14, he gets into a boat in order to be alone, Matthew tells us. But the crowds follow him, and they press in on him, and his compassion once again gets the better of him. So he wades through the hordes of people, healing them as he moves along. And the disciples encourage him to, to get rid of all these people, or else they'll starve in this lonely, isolated place, Matthew tells us. They're in a desert of sorts. They're going to starve. Get them out of here. Send them home. It's not a safe place to be. But Jesus insists instead of feeding them in that lonely and isolated place. So he takes a small lunch and fills the bellies of thousands, there in that deserted, isolated place, fed, thousands fed, with leftovers to boot. And when it's all said and done, you would expect Jesus to say, come on guys, let's get out of here. Instead, he says, you guys go get in that boat and leave me alone. And so he shooed the crowds away, and he took off for an isolated place to pray. He needed to pray. Opposition to his ministry was growing at this point. Jesus, no doubt, was feeling the weight of his destiny, the cross. You may recall that in the same chapter, chapter 14 of Matthew, just before the feeding of the 5,000, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, and the greatest preacher of the day had been brutally and unjustly executed. Storm clouds were brewing, even for the Son of God. And he chooses to address the darkness of all that's on him by spending the night, the whole night, in prayer, alone. Have we forgotten this, I wonder? Prayer, I mean. Have we so quickly moved on to other, more practical remedies that now prayer has become an off afterthought? Do you feel that way? I'm not suggesting we return to it, but I grew up attending the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And I remember when I was very young, the Wednesday night prayer meeting was full, and I remember as a young adult, the Wednesday night prayer meeting had dwindled down to about 10 of us, and so we did something else. I get their social reasons for this. I get community groups. I get all that. I'm not, I'm not saying that church has to go back to Wednesday night prayer meeting, but it was part and parcel of what it meant to be the people of God that we were gathering to In any case, Jesus makes the disciples get into the boat. They were alone in the boat. He said, get in the boat. Jesus, alone on the mountain. And as one translation puts it, Matthew says, later in the evening, he was still there. 
In other words, he's in no rush to check on his friends. And the farther they drift away from him, the longer the night feels. Maybe that's what Matthew's trying to say when he includes that little phrase. Later in the evening, he was still there. That is, on the mountain. Jesus lingered somewhere very far from them, and they felt isolated and lonely and terrified. Just like we do. Just like we do, especially when the storm hits, like it did for them. And the little boat gets pounded by the waves and the wind. Pounded. Battered. Waves and wind have made an appearance in the Bible before. Genesis 1 comes to mind. The Spirit of God, whom Jesus calls the wind in John 3, moved over the face of the waters. Can you imagine being there for that? Can you imagine seeing that creative, primordial wind? The world was formless and empty and dark, and God enacted a creative power, generating order, and it was the wind over the waves. And then there was a new day. Incidentally, Matthew says that just before dawn, while these helpless, fearful, lonely men are being battered by waves and wind, right before the dawning of a new day, Jesus appears to them, walking on the water. And you think, finally, he's here. Everything's fine. I got him, guys. He's coming. He's on the water. Don't worry. It's all good. No. That ratchets up the fear even more. They're terrified. They're terrified that the storm is no big deal. All of a sudden, dead people are after them. They're terrified that there's a ghost. And Jesus calls out, Take heart. It is I. You know what the words are? I, it's a cardinal rule in preaching. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to do it this one time. You're never supposed to say, in the Greek, it's literally. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll say it this one time because it's important. But in the Greek, he says, Ego, Amy. It is I. I am. You've heard that one before? The same ones that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush when he promised to do the impossible. And I'll deliver your people, Moses, from 400 years of slavery. You don't have a weapon on you. And the only thing you know is that I am will take you out. Don't be afraid. And now on the lake, when the apostles are all alone, being battered by the winds and the waves, and they have no idea who this is walking out to them, and they have no way of getting out of this predicament, Jesus says, Don't be afraid. I am. 
I am the God who opens up the Red Sea at just the right moment. I am the God who may seem to be a great distance from you when your oncologist gives you the diagnosis. I am the God who is ever-present, who has not left you on your own. And the distance you feel is no distance from me. It is I. I am. And Peter jumps out. He jumps out into the chaotic waters. I admire his courage, brief though it was. He did more than the other eleven. My friend shared with me how his young son, without a hint of doubt, reassured his young six-year-old sister that the cancer in his body was not going to make him die. Naive, ill-informed, completely irrational. Or maybe he's full of courage. And maybe it's divine hope and faith that being battered by waves and winds is nothing to the I am. Maybe it's that. Whatever it is, I want what that little boy has. Don't you? Peter displays some courage and some faith, but then, like most of us who are a bit older, he notices the wind and fear sets in, and anxiety takes over and he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out, pulls him up, and calls him, Oh, little faith. That's how the text reads. I think Peter, I think Jesus gave Peter a new nickname here. Little faith. Why did you doubt, little faith? That's one of those recurring themes in Matthew. You'd think that men who'd seen all that these men had seen wouldn't struggle with doubt. And then, as Jesus takes him up to a mountain, just before he leaves to return to the Father, Matthew tells us that even then, even after the resurrection, some doubt. Peter, little faith, doubt. And Jesus extends his hand and pulls him into the boat. One of my favorite lines in all of the scripture, he remembers... We are but dust. I hope so. He knows we struggle to believe and to rest and to trust and to have joy in the face of everything. And he continues to extend his hand to us, patiently teaching us that time and again he will provide for us. He will love us, especially, especially, especially when life doesn't go according to plan. So when you doubt the goodness and the power and the love of God for you, well, you're in good company. Peter and his friends did too. And you haven't seen any of the wonders that they saw. So I don't blame you when you begin to question how Jesus can be fully God and fully human at the same time. Or why horrendous evils like Murdering children can be tolerated by a good and loving God. I don't blame you for doubting. 
I don't blame you for hearing about resurrections and eternal life and complete forgiveness, even for the pedophile, and wondering if that's just some sort of nonsense that makes our world even worse. I don't blame you for doubting in the face of all of that. The disciples who knew him best and saw all the miracles with their own eyes, they doubted too. But Jesus has this way of showing up right before dawn to reach out and hold us with his mighty right hand and help us on our feet. And he seems to be quite comfortable with our doubts and our little faith. Fortunately, only a little faith is required. We may not be entirely convinced of everything we hear from Jesus or Paul, we may have our doubts that his church is the best place for us, for our family, but nevertheless, here we are, right now. And even if your faith isn't the sort that they'll write books about and quote you in sermons, it's enough to get you here and to pray and to sing and to come to this table. We'll take that. Jesus will take that. Oh, little faith. Come on. Let's get in the boat. Yes, you've been battered. But I am. A lot of people struggle to believe this about Jesus. And their doubts are so strong that they turn their backs on Jesus and refuse to believe what stories like our gospel reading today are teaching us. Now, if that's true for you, or someone you know, may I just offer a thought for your consideration. When your doubts are too great and you reject God, please be aware of what you're opting for. You're not simply walking away from something and stepping into freedom and salvation. You're instead opting to put your faith and trust in something, whether that's yourself, or a material universe, or a government, or some other entity that is entirely finite and completely flawed. In other words, I, I may not be able to give you an adequate explanation of how evil and an all-loving and good God can coexist at the same time. But rejecting that God, I would suggest that you don't have an explanation, a better explanation for evil in the world. And now you have no power that's above our material world that can save you from our miserable condition. So, you walk away with, from God, removing God, might eliminate some of your doubts. But it doesn't put you in a better position for love and salvation and meaningful life. Because now, we only have ourselves with all of our limitations. Space, time, power, knowledge, morality, etc. So think about not only what you would walk away from, but what you're going to. And can that save you? 
One day, Peter, little faith, he got this point. Jesus said to his disciples, are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. See, that's what people of just a little faith do. They don't actually have all the answers. But they still venture out of the boat. A great distance. And they jump out of the boat full of reckless courage and naivete, believing that the how questions aren't nearly as important as the who questions. Did you get that in the text? They didn't ask Jesus when the winds and the waves calmed down and he got in the boat. They didn't ask Jesus, how'd you do that? They answered the who question. Some God. You must be. And when they do this, and when they jump out, and when they follow, a lot of times the winds and the waves will batter people of little faith. And they'll be terrified, and they'll doubt. But for those people, for the ones who exhibit even a little bit of faith, Jesus comes along and takes them by the hand. Just before a new day, all that chaos. He's making us in this world new, just a little faith, mixed with a fair amount of doubt. He can work with that. There's a good chance I've told you this story before. A friend of mine lives on the banks of Loch Fyne in western Scotland. When he was very young, a great storm was brewing on the loch. And one of the family boats was on the other side, destined to be destroyed against the rocks if they didn't retrieve it. The day was getting late, and my friend was with an old man who had been around the loch for years, all of his life, and for reasons that I can't recall, my friend had to stay with the old man as they went in one boat to try to collect the other boat and bring it back to the dock to safety before it was destroyed. And so they went, but the storm was too strong. They reached the boat, but they couldn't return to the dock. So they stayed out on the water all night in the storm, tossed and battered and beaten back and forth. If you've been in a storm in a small boat, it is not an enjoyable experience. And they worked as hard as they could to keep from sinking. And I said to my friend when he was telling me this story, as we stood on the banks of the loch that day, I said, you must have been terrified. You're such a young child. And he said, no, I really wasn't. He said, because I was with the old man. And I just believed that if he was in the boat with me, all would be well. Thanks be to God.